Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Coming Apocalypse. All right, so for the next two weeks, I'm excited. The next two weeks, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 13, which means that for the next two weeks, we have the privilege and the honor of studying the subject, the fascinating subject of eschatology. And so what in the world is eschatology? It's very simple. Eschatology is the study of end time events. And so if you don't know me very well, uh, what you need to know is that I personally love eschatology. About 30 years ago in Bible college, I took an eight semester hour course on eschatology and end times. I read a book about that thick called Things to Come by J. Dwight Pentecost and it changed me. Ever since that day, 30 something years ago, um, that I read that book and took that class and learned about end time events, I've been intrigued with this subject. Since we started the church 14 and a half years ago, I've taught through the book of Revelation twice and the book of Daniel once and absolutely loved every minute of it. I've done three conferences in Haiti on the end times and loved every minute of it. I took a grad course in eschatology last year as part of my uh, seminary studies absolutely loved every minute of it. And then as we've taught through various books of the Bible, we have come to, like today, the topic of eschatology. And whenever that happens, the week before, I get, I get excited. I probably love eschatology a little too much, which is why I'm glad that we are a Calvary Chapel affiliated church and I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor and we're committed to what's called expository teaching. You see, we are under the discipline of going through books of the Bible verse by verse, and what that does, it keeps me balanced, it keeps our church balanced, it helps us learn about a wide range of topics that are important for our discipleship, as opposed to just learning about a few topics that your pastor particularly loves, like the end times. But we're here, we're in Mark 13, and so we're gonna talk about Jesus' Olivet Discourse. The reason it's called the Olivet Discourse is because Jesus gave this discourse, this teaching on the Mount of Olives. And so the Mount of Olives is just across the Kidron Valley, just east of the old city of Jerusalem. It's called the Mount of Olives because of the beautiful olive trees that are there. If you go with us to Israel, we go every two years, we'll take you there. We'll show you some of these olive trees, ladies and gentlemen, that some of them are over 900 years old. The Garden of Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives. It's a place where Jesus absolutely loved to go and meditate and pray and spend time with his disciples. And we're gonna talk a lot about the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. And so if you lived in the first century, and you stood on the western slope of the Mount of Olives and you looked across the Kidron Valley in Jesus' day, you saw something like this. It's called the, first, the second Jewish temple, also known as Herod's temple, and it was an architectural masterpiece. And so you have the first Jewish temple um, that was built by Solomon 
and it was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? And so Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians for 70 years. The prophet Jeremiah said, 70 years, they're gonna come back. Sure enough, they did. And when they came back, 70 years later, they built the second Jewish temple in 516 BC. When they built it, um, it was awesome, but it didn't look anything like that. And so this guy named Herod the Great, uh, an incredible architect, by the way, but an incredible villain as well, um, around 20 BC, he decided to give the second Jewish temple a facelift. And so he started renovating this second Jewish temple. It took 84 years, and in AD 63, it was finally completed. And so the temple was the pride and the joy of the Jewish people. It was the centerpiece of their religion. Much of it was made of white marble, as you can see there from this model of the temple. Uh, much of it was plated with gold and that it was it faced east. And so the sun, as it rose in the east, it would, on a clear morning, um, sunlight would just reflect off the, 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 the plated gold and it would almost blind you if you're looking at the temple during the morning hours. The stones were absolutely massive. The stones of the temple uh, mount, the four retaining walls, we'll take you there, we'll show you those stones, absolutely incredible how big they were, but the stones of the actual temple building as well were very large and people marveled at this building, they marveled at the huge stones, okay? And so that's what verse one and two are about. And so please look at Mark 13, verses one and two. It says, and as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Lord, look at this place, right? Jesus has just got uh, finished uh, preaching and teaching on the temple courts, going at it with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He watched the widow give her offering in the court of women. Now they're leaving. Lord, look at these buildings. Oh my goodness, look at these stones. And Jesus said, it's not gonna last. In fact, every single stone will be torn down. If you're new to the Bible and new to biblical history, you need to know that 37 years after Jesus said what he said in verse two, it actually happened. The Jews in AD 66 revolted against the Roman Empire. I've told you this. They took back the city of Jerusalem. The Roman Empire surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They invaded, they killed over a million Jews in AD 70. By the time the dust cleared, they went in, they burnt the temple down, and the Roman soldiers removed every charred stone, stone by stone, looking for the gold that melted between the stones, scraping the gold so that they could have some revenue from this destruction. And so in a, around 80, 32, 33, great scholars uh, debate about whether Jesus died in AD 32 or 33. So around AD 32 or 33, Jesus said 
the temple will be destroyed in AD 70, not allegorically, but literally, the temple was destroyed. What does that mean? Here's what it means, very important as we kick off the Olivet Discourse. If Jesus' first prophecy in verse two was literally fulfilled, what does that mean? It means that all of his other prophecies in verses five through 27 will also be literally fulfilled. Do you guys see it? If Jesus said this temple is gonna be destroyed and that actually happened in history, what that means is that all the other prophecies we're gonna look at in the next two weeks in verses five through 27, they're not gonna be fulfilled in some allegorical way like some Christian interpreters wanna change the Bible. No, they will literally be fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that the apocalypse is coming to a theater near you. And it's not gonna be a movie. It will at some point begin to happen on this earth. And it will culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the question I have for you before we even move on is do you care? Do you live your life in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ? is as you plan your life, and I'm speaking especially to the younger people, as you plan your life and you think about what course you're gonna take and what you're going to do, do you even think about the second coming of Jesus Christ? In other words, are you submitted to his will for your life? And by the way, he has an amazing plan for your life if you'll just follow him? Are you submitting your will to his plan for your life or are you just going your own way, doing your own thing, living for yourself as if you created yourself? You see, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, I don't care how, how prideful you are, I don't care how much you think you're so great, when he comes back, you will stand eyeball to eyeball with the uncreated son of God and you will give an account, and I will give an account of my life. And at that point, you will wish that you had submitted your will to his will and found out what his plan for your life is and followed that plan as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus and his disciples leave the temple area. And as they're leaving the temple area, they headed east across the Kidron Valley. That means they left the temple mount back here. They went down the Kidron Valley. They walked up the Mount of Olives. They turned around and they sat down and they're looking at the temple. And as they're looking at what this, this, this seems to be an indestructible building, the disciples are trying to absorb what Jesus just said. It's gonna be destroyed. And so they're freaking out and they come up with two questions for the Lord concerning what he just said, all right? So look at verse three now, Mark 13, verse three. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, here's question number one, when will these things be? And so you need to know that for 2,000 years and in our culture today, that's the primary question when you talk about end times. When's it gonna happen? Question number two, 
What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so Jesus replied to their first question, hey Lord, when's it gonna happen? He replied in verse 32. Okay, so go ahead and look over at Mark 13, verse 32. I love that sound. Do you hear that sound of the pages turning? Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, how many people know? <laughs> no one knows. And by the way, that means stop buying the books of the guys who set the dates. Listen, you're just making those guys rich and they don't know what they're talking about. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. And so this, the disciples said, Lord, when are these things gonna happen? And Jesus said, I don't know. Now, you might be thinking right now, wait a minute, Pastor, last week you were proclaiming the deity of Christ, that he's the eternal son of God, not a created being, that he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal and sovereign. How can the eternal son of God not know when he's gonna return? And I would answer your question and say, return next week and I'll tell you. Because we're not in verse 32, we're in verse three and four. We gotta just make our way verse by verse, okay? Second question. At the end of verse four, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And the Lord answers that question and says, that I know. And he gives them the answer to their question in verses five through 27. Listen, not by just elaborating on one particular sign, but talking about many signs that are gonna happen during the coming apocalypse. We call the, uh, the coming apocalypse, the term that we use in our Christian vernacular is the tribulation. Okay, some of your versions talk about the great tribulation, that's the last three and a half years, but we've expounded on that um, and I'll show you why in a minute, we call the whole period the tribulation. If you've heard of the tribulation, let me just see your hands to see how many people you have, have heard of it. Okay, so that's like 80%. So before we talk about the tribulation, which is what Mark 13 is all about, we gotta determine how long is the tribulation period. What you need to know is that you cannot interpret the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 correctly if you don't know the book of Revelation and you don't know the book of Daniel. You got to know those two books, those two prophetic books in order to interpret Jesus' words correctly. And so how long will the tribulation be? For that answer, we go back into the Old Testament to the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter nine, there's a mind-blowing prophecy called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And in that prophecy, God through an angel named Gabriel told his prophet Daniel about the end times. In this one verse, and by the way, this is only half of the verse. In this one verse, he tells Daniel about what's called the 70th week. Okay, so he, the Antichrist, is in the context will confirm a covenant, scholars believe a peace treaty, with many, okay, we're talking about Israel here, so this is about Israel and no doubt her neighbors, for one 
What's the word? Seven. Seven. Okay, in the Hebrew it's Shavuot, and in that eschatological context, it's not seven days. It's not a week of days, it's a week of years. That's what the word means in that context, it's a seven year period. But in the middle of the seven, okay, so what's half a seven, you tell me? Okay, in the middle of the seven, after three and a half years, he, the Antichrist, will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And so what the Lord does right here is he tells Daniel in half a verse, three things about the end times. Number one, there will come an end time evil leader. We call him the Antichrist. He's also called the son of destruction, the son of perdition. He's called the beast in lots of different places in Daniel, Revelation. So this Antichrist is coming. This global political leader is coming to the world. Not allegorically, physically, and literally. Perhaps he's alive right now. We don't know. Perhaps he's a little kid running around somewhere. We don't know. But we know he will come. And so that's number one, there will be an end time evil leader. Number two, this guy as he's up and coming is going to confirm a peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors for seven years, a seven year peace treaty. In other words, he's gonna do what politicians, nobody has been able to do since 1948 when the Jews came back to their land, Israel. He's gonna bring peace to the Middle East. By the way, it's gonna be very short lived. And in the middle of that seven year period, that seven year tribulation, three and a half years into it, here's number three, the Antichrist is going to stop the Jewish sacrifices and offerings. What does that infer? That infers, ladies and gentlemen, the Jewish temple will be rebuilt. Okay, so right now, what is over on the Temple Mount in Israel, if you go to, go to Israel? The, the Dome of the Rock, right? AD 690 is when that thing was built. Okay, and so here's what we know. Based upon God's word, okay, if you believe this is God's word, say amen. amen. Based upon God's word, the temple, the Jewish temple will be rebuilt. And it will be rebuilt probably, this is my opinion now, an opinion, by the way, of many scholars, part of that peace treaty, that seven-year peace treaty, will be an allowance for the Jews to rebuild their temple, so it will probably be rebuilt in the first year or so of the tribulation period. You say, what's gonna happen to the Dome of the Rock? We don't know. The Bible's silent, I'll be silent. Here's a theory. The theory is that in that time, there's gonna be an ecumenical spirit and attitude where you know everybody thinks all religions lead to God. We all just need to love each other and get along and accept each religion as equally valid. And so possibly, maybe, the Jewish temple will be built right next door to the Dome of the Rock. There's plenty of room up there. I've been up there three times. And so, how does this verse, Daniel 9, 27, fit in with Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. I wanna show you one of my favorite commentators how he breaks down Mark 13. This is where we are in the Bible. This will help you to understand the verses that we're gonna be interpreting. And so his name is Charles Ryrie. By the way, he has a great study Bible. And by the way, a great Christmas present that you can ask for 
is the Ryrie Study Bible, and then make a commitment that starting on January 1st, you're gonna read through the Bible either in one year, or if you don't have that much time, in two years, and make sure you read God's word and then read this guy's comments on God's word. He just went home to be with the Lord not too long ago. Great, great scholar, Bible believer. And so the seven-year tribulation, Daniel 9 says it's gonna be seven years, can be broken up In Mark 13, verses five through 13, that talks about the first half of the tribulation period. Then in verse 14, Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation. That's the midpoint of this seven-year period. And then in verses 15 through 23, you have the second half of the tribulation period, which, by the way, is way worse than the first half. And then you have in verses 24 through 27, the second coming of Jesus Christ. I wanted to show you this outline because no doubt as we go through these verses, some of you are gonna be thinking the things that Jesus is saying, it's happening right now. And so we're in the tribulation right now. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not in the tribulation right now. Not even close as far as the things that are happening in the world. And so one of the reasons, and there's lots of reasons, but you know, I have 45 minutes. And so one of the reasons that we know that we're not in the tribulation right now is because no up and coming global leader has signed a seven year peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors. Does that make sense to you guys? That's what kicks off the seven year, it's called the 70th week of Daniel the last seven years of history as we know it. So we're not in the tribulation period. And so with all that information, please look at verse five. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, I'm the Messiah. And they, those false messiahs, will lead many astray. Do you know why they're gonna lead many astray? Here's why, because many people don't know this book. Many people ignore this book. For many people, this book doesn't even get cracked open Monday through Saturday, and they may bring it to church if they remember. Because people don't know God's word, they're led astray in the end times, thinking that every Tom, Dick, and Harry who says I'm the Messiah must be the Messiah because they got some signs and wonders going on in their quote-unquote ministry. How many of you guys understand that signs and wonders can come from God, but signs and wonders can also come straight from Satan? And so you have to be discerning. And the only way you become discerning is you know this book. And so many will be led astray. He goes on to say in verse seven, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so here are some of the signs of the first half of the tribulation period. There'll be false messiahs, verse six. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, verses seven through eight. There'll be earthquakes and famines, the last 
part of verse eight. You say, pastor, these things are happening right now. And I would say, yes, but what ha- what's happening right now is nothing compared to what's gonna happen during that last, last seven years. So keep that in mind, please. I wanna focus in on the end of verse eight. Okay, the end of verse eight, Jesus says these, these signs, these cataclysmic events are but the beginning of birth pains. Now I watched my wife go through labor three times. We have three daughters, Megan, Mandy, Mary. I was there in the room. I watched my wife go through labor three times. And all I've gotta say after seeing that is God, thank you that I'm a man, (laughs) right? I don't know how you women do it. More power to you, God bless you, but wow. Now, for us, particularly, um, Stacy's labor with Mandy was really rough. Okay, so when our first daughter, Megan, was born, and our last daughter, Mary, was born, um, we got to the hospital in time for the doctors to inject this magical formula into the space around the spinal cord that just made my wife feel great, even though the contractions on the monitor were through the roof, she was just smiling at me. And so, you know, we highly recommend epidurals. (laughs) But when our, I can see some of the ladies are like (laughs) doing this. But for Mandy, our middle daughter, we got to the hospital and they said, we still think they're all liars. They said, you're too far along, Stacy. you can't have an epidural. And I watched my wife go through the worst pain I've ever seen my wife go through. And so toward, I told this story almost two years ago, but we had a lot of new people, I'll tell it again, okay? <laughs> and so toward the end of her labor, Stacy's labor, she's pushing and pushing and pushing, and, and Mandy's just in there, and she's like, I'm not coming out, right? And so, my wife just keeps pushing and pushing and labor pains and contractions, right? And Mandy's not coming. This continues on until the doctor, who's a very mild-mannered man, he is alarmed, he's concerned. And I'm here, my wife is there, he's here, and he gets up on his tippy toes, gets in my wife's face and says, there's a total lack of effort here. I said, push! yelled at my wife and I'm like this and my wife goes ah right and all of a sudden like a center hiking a football to a quarterback (laughs) Stacy hiked Mandy to the doctor hard and it wasn't just Mandy that she hiked to the doctor all of a sudden just splattered with blood. And I'm, I'm watching the whole thing. Man, you, I should have sold tickets, right? And so I look at him and he looks down at his gown and, and this doctor's eyes are like this, like he cannot believe that this woman just did this. And thank God, Mandy came out. The umbilical cord was really tight around her neck over and over. And so they took care of all of that. They cut the cord, they cleaned her off and they handed little Amanda Joy Wiggins to my wife. And ladies and gentlemen, here's what I know. I know that all the pain that my wife went through previously in labor with Mandy was all forgotten when she received that little bundle of joy. Amen, ladies? It's true. And so 
Amanda, we named her Amanda Joy. The middle name, my wife and I did really good on that. Because Mandy, I tell you what, 25 years, she has brought our family nothing but joy. She's just a gem. Three years later, we arrived at the hospital for Mary to be born. My wife is out to here. She walks into the room, a little nurse, really nice, walks up to her to introduce herself to my wife. And before she had a chance to say anything, my wife looked at her and said, I want an epidural. <laughs> Never seen Stacy, just like, Wah. She's like, okay, honey, we'll take care of it. Now, I said all that because it really does apply to the Bible to say that during labor, a woman's contractions will increase in frequency and intensity until something wonderful happens, and that is a child is born. And as I said before, when that child is born, all the pain that the woman received or felt before is forgotten because she's so full of joy. In the same way, here I, here's how it applies to the Bible. During the labor pains of the coming apocalypse, cataclysmic events will increase in frequency and intensity until something wonderful happens. The kingdom of God arrives and then joy will fill the earth. It's gonna be amazing. Now the labor pains of the tribulation period, they're called the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. How many of you guys were here last year when we taught through Revelation? Okay, so about half of you. Praise the Lord, our church continues to grow. And so seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are the labor pains, the contractions of the tribulation period according to the book of Revelation. What I wanna do, you don't have to turn to Revelation 16, but I wanna just give you a quick sneak peek of seven of the labor pains that are gonna happen right before the end, right before the kingdom is born. They're called the seven bowl judgments. And so in the second half of the tribulation, toward the end of that second half, because, and by the way, these judgments are not God's fault. People will be cursing God out, shaking their fists at heaven and blaming God. But ladies and gentlemen, we have no one to blame except ourselves. God made us. God came and died for us and rose again. And we still have the audacity to say, forget God and do whatever we wanna do and live unholy, ungodly lives. So of course, judgment is coming to the world. You say, well, isn't God a God of love and grace? Yes, absolutely. If, and it's a big if, you turn from your sin in repentance and you turn to Jesus in faith. Then you'll have all the grace in the world because there's no way your sins can be forgiven but by the blood of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Here's what I know. <clears throat> Not millions, B, billions of people want nothing to do with what I just said. So judgment's coming. And the first bowl will be poured out. That first bowl of God's wrath are gonna be painful sores all over the bodies of humanity. The sores are gonna be so painful, the Bible says that people will gnaw on their tongues 
to try to get some relief. And then the second bowl will be, will be poured out. And what's gonna happen at that time is that the seas, the saltwater oceans are gonna become, I'm quoting the Bible, like the blood of a corpse. And all sea life will die. Can you see, walking out to Jensen Beach, marine life coming up onto the beach, dead. You say, pastor, that's impossible. No, it's, it's gonna happen. It's, it's the end of the world that we're talking about here. And then bowl number three will be poured out and all the rivers, freshwater rivers and springs will become contaminated, causing a shortage of drinking water. Everybody's freaking out with all these sores all over themselves and marine life washing up on the beaches and they can't find any water for their families. And then the fourth bowl will be poured out. The sun will scorch people with heat and with fire. And that's when the Bible says people begin to curse God. And by the way, I personally don't believe there's any true atheists. I personally do not believe that there is someone on the earth that says, I absolutely do not believe in God at all. Because as soon as the the, uh, difficult things start to happen in life, all of a sudden, who are you cursing out? The person you don't believe in? And so they begin to curse God. And then the fifth bowl is poured out and darkness covers the whole earth day and night. The sixth bowl is poured out. The Euphrates River dries up, allowing a passage for the armies of the east to march across the Euphrates River to the land of Israel, to the area of Megiddo. I'll take you there if you go with us to Israel. It's amazing. The the plains of Jezreel, Armageddon, or the Battle of Armageddon. I don't believe they're marching to this place. I believe they're limping because of all the cataclysmic events that are happening in the world. And after those six contractions, after those six cataclysmic events, mankind, like a woman in labor toward the end, is screaming out in pain, but there's one more contraction. The seventh bowl is poured out, and the Bible says it's the worst earthquake in history. And so imagine the whole globe shaking, skyscrapers falling, mountains crumbling, islands sinking, And if that's not enough, scripture says a hundred pound hailstones raining, pelting, crushing people. Contraction after contraction, increasing in frequency and intensity. And then when the world can't take any more, then all of a sudden someone says, look up. And it's the sign of the son of man appearing in heaven. And Jesus comes back. He defeats his enemies at Armageddon. He cleans up the global mess. He sets up his kingdom on the earth. He reigns as the son of David. Righteousness, peace, joy covers the earth. Once again, he gives, the second Adam gives back to us what the first Adam took away from us. He brings back, quote unquote, the Garden of Eden globally. And at that time, all the pain will be forgotten. And we, like a mother receiving her newborn child, will rejoice in our King. It's gonna be a wonderful thing. It's gonna get bad. But after all the bad, it's gonna get really good forever. And so that's the second coming and I'm getting ahead of myself. Actually, the second coming is next week. 
Not literally, I'm teaching on it next week. <laughs> but we gotta get back to the tribulation, okay? And so let's, let's go through these verses. Look at verse nine. Please stay with me all the way to the end, okay? Listen, we can watch a two and a half hour movie in our living rooms and eat popcorn, and we can't, we can't take a 45 minute message verse by verse. Stay, I'm challenging you as your pastor. This is what pastors do. Challenging you to stay to the end, keep concentrating all the way to the end. And so verse nine, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to how many nations? All nations. That's Buddhist nations, Islamic nations, Hindu nations, all nations. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but who? The Holy Spirit. It cracks me up because some pastors use that verse, verse 11, for an excuse of why they don't study during the week and they get up on Sunday and they wing it because, well, look, it's the Holy Spirit. But if you leave the verse in the context, it's talking about what takes place in the tribulation, not what takes place on Sunday morning. Pastors really should prepare for their messages. Oh, verse 12, and, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 13, and you will be hated for all, uh, by all, for my name's sake. And by the way, if you live for Jesus outwardly and openly, I'm not saying if you act like a jerk, I'm saying if you live outwardly and openly for Jesus Christ, you will be hated. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so what else can be expected during the tribulation period? Jesus told us two more things, and I'll let you dig into this deeper later. I'll just go through it quickly. But believers will be persecuted and martyred. That's verse 9, 12, and 13. And by the way, in America, Christians, we have it made here. My goodness, our government lets us gather together publicly and lets a guy like me preach the way I preach and teach from God's word. You know what's happening right now to churches, churches right now in China? Guys like me are being put in prison and church buildings like this are being crushed literally by the government right now. We ought to thank God for the United States of America and pray that things stay the way they do. Number two, the gospel will go global. How's that gonna happen? It's gonna happen by the two witnesses of Revelation 11, the 144 Jewish evangelists in Revelation 7, the tribulation saints, which by the way, the Bible says you can't even count them. There's so many people who get saved during the tribulation. Total revival occurs. And the angel, get this, people get mad at God. I don't like all this judgment stuff. Well, what you need to know is God's not willing that anybody should perish. Look, he sends two witnesses, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, Un, innumerable tribulation saints, and if that's not enough, an angel is circling the world and preaching the everlasting gospel. Here's the truth. Don't let anybody ever lie to you. God is not willing that any should perish. And right up to the end, the witness continues to go forward. And so 
At the end of verse 13, he says, he who endures to the end will be sozo, saved. That means delivered from destruction. In the context, if you leave it in the context, what that means is that believers in the tribulation who are not uh, duped by the false prophet, do not worship the antichrist, do not take his mark in their right hand or their foreheads, Revelation 13, and they somehow survive all the cataclysmic events of the second half of the tribulation period. If they make it to the end, they will be sozo, saved, delivered from the destruction of the tribulation when Christ returns. That's what it means when you leave it in this context. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to, to, to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so Jesus is speaking of the abomination of desolation and he's getting it from the book of Daniel. Jesus read his Bible. You remember Daniel chapter nine, verse 27? I'll show you the whole verse now. This is what Jesus is referring to. And so the Antichrist signs the peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors for a seven year period. Hey, Israel, I'm for you, I'll protect you. Come to the table, let's get this done. But he's a liar because in the middle of the seven, three and a half years into it, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. Now when he does that, the apostle Paul, and I emphasize that because some people, they don't think the book of Revelation should be part of the canon of scripture because all the stuff that I'm talking about bothers people too much. And so they say, just take it out of the Bible. Okay, if, even if you did that, I wouldn't do that by the way. But even if you did that, the apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, verse four, tells us what happens next after the antichrist stops the Jewish sacrifices and I'm quoting the Bible, if you're with me, say amen. amen. He says, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The apostle Paul says this. The apostle Paul believes all this stuff. That means that the Antichrist, this world dictator, is gonna march into the rebuilt temple and there in front of the world's media, he's gonna sit down and he's gonna say, this, this egomaniac, this political egomaniac's gonna say, I'm God. And then what is he gonna do? Jesus says it, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Okay, so he's gonna set up something that's gonna cause desolation, destruction, cataclysmic events for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, all right? And so what's the abomination of desolation? It's an image of this coming global leader, this egomaniac that will be placed in the rebuilt Jewish temple. You say, pastor, really? Come on. Hey, this is what Jesus said. And I think he knows what he's talking about. And so, Idolatry is wrong, first commandment, but how horrible to see a statue of a political leader in a Jewish temple. 
And at that point, the Jews are gonna know this guy we thought was for us is actually against us. In fact, he's not just against us, he's the worst anti-Semitic ruler in all of history. And what does Jesus say to the Jews in Judea at the end of verse 14? He says, run for your life, flee. Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Do you see that? The second half of the tribulation period between the abomination of desolation, the second coming is gonna be so bad if God didn't shorten the days, not one person would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And so how long is the Antichrist gonna rule and how long will the Jews be in hiding? Let's go ahead and put up the, 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 the next point. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months, how long is that? That's three and a half years. So for three and a half years, what you see now in verses 15 through 18 is gonna take place. And so the one who's on the housetop can't go down the one who's in the field can't go back to get his cloak. Verse 17, women who are pregnant, it's gonna be so difficult for them. Verse 18, pray it doesn't happen in, in winter. So all those things are gonna happen um, during that last three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, and it's gonna be the worst time in human history. Last few verses, verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, you Jews who are in hiding. Look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so the Jews after the abomination of desolation, after the Antichrist says, I'm God, after he sets up his image, Jesus says, run for your life, they run. They go to Isaiah 63, Edom, Basra, which is present day Jordan. If you look at the map, you got Israel here, you got Jordan right here. The Jews flee to the mountains. Many people believe it's the rock city of Petra and they hide for three and a half years. While they're in hiding, Jesus says, there's gonna be lots of false messiahs saying, I'm the guy, I'm the Messiah. Don't be duped. Stay in hiding, here's why. Because Jesus says, I love you to the Jewish people. I'm coming back for you. I will rescue you. And if you wanna read later how he rescues them, read Isaiah 63 verses one through eight. It's a bloody scene. And so he comes back. Next week, we'll teach on it. As we're wrapping this up today, I wanna address two groups of people. The first group I wanna address are those of you who are absolutely 100% born again Christians. And so you know that you know, 
that if you died today, you straight into the arms of Jesus in heaven. What I wanna encourage you, if you're with me, say amen here. Okay, listen, born again Christians, I wanna encourage you, don't let your heart get cold. Don't backslide into sin. Please don't give in to an unholy life. If, if you are a born again Christian, and there's some sin that's got you all wrapped up. Hey, we're your church family, we love you. Come talk to us. You have the power of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit inside of you, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Don't give into that sin anymore. Don't tolerate the sin anymore. Say no to your sin, say yes to Jesus Christ, and he'll deliver you. And live in a state of revival. The other group I wanna address are those of you, if you died today, you have no idea where you'd go. And what I would say to you is that Jesus is the answer. Jesus Christ is the one who loves you. He knows everything about you too, but he loves you. He came and he died for you. He paid for all your sins and he rose again the third day. And he says, I want you to receive me. I want to be your Lord, your master, your savior. And so if you sense that you're being drawn by Jesus and his love, and you'd like to ask him to forgive all your sins, and you'd like to give him your life today, whoever you are in the room, we, we do this publicly because Jesus, God, the God man, hung half naked publicly on a cross bearing our sins. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, he was judged for your sins, so you won't have to be judged and go to hell. Do you see that? If you die in your sins, you will end up in hell because God is a just God. But Jesus experienced hell on the cross in your place. If you'd like to invite him in and be your savior and Lord, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. We'll take care of it right now. Just say, Lord, I need you. You're the, you're the answer. I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna receive you as my savior and Lord. I'm gonna give my life to you this morning. Please don't delay, just stand up. You know who you are, you're being drawn. God's drawing you. Just stand to your feet, whoever you are. Who else is gonna join these people? God bless you guys. Just, just stand and remain standing, all right? Stand and remain standing. And let's really encourage these people as they stand up for the Lord. Whoever you are, you say, I need Jesus Christ. I need him. And, and, and can I give you some advice? Let me give you some advice. God bless you guys, that takes courage. But let me give you some advice. If right now you're fighting, don't fight God. Why would you fight someone who died for you and loves you? Give in to the Lord, submit your will to his, his will. Stand up and say, Jesus, you're my savior, my, you're my Lord. Whoever you are, I'm not gonna keep doing this for a long time. So just stand to your feet and we'll take care of this right now, whoever you are. Church be praying, because I know there's people who need to respond to Jesus today. So, for these three people, I wanna commend you for your courage. I don't know you guys personally, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do know this, that when Jesus said, if you'll publicly acknowledge me before man, 
I'll publicly acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. And that's a beautiful thing. And so Jesus Christ right now is publicly acknowledging you because he knows your name, even though I don't, to his Father. And so if you believe that he's the only way to heaven, that his blood is the only thing that can forgive your sins, and you'd like to receive him now as your Savior and Lord, I'm gonna ask you, you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. And church family, we're gonna say this prayer out loud in support of these who are responding. Before I pray, I just wanna encourage one last thing. Don't just say words. This is your prayer straight to the heart of Jesus. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I, I know I deserve judgment. But I believe you were, you were judged in my place on the cross for my sins. I thank you for your act of love, for paying for all my sins. I thank you that you died and I thank you that you rose again. I open my heart to you and I ask you to come in, forgive my sins, be my master and my savior. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's give it up one more time for these who responded to the Lord. Praise God, praise God, praise God. You guys can be seated. You guys can be seated. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's a beautiful truth, beautiful promise. Jesus paid it all. Now here's the admonition. Let's live for him in the power of the spirit of God, right? And so Pastor Matt, come on out. I love you guys and we'll see you next week. And uh, Matt's gonna give uh, instructions to especially those of you who receive Christ as your savior.